Hello and welcome to the Intentional Soul, the home for the highly functioning spiritual types out in the world. It is here that we look at the world and ourselves through the lens of higher consciousness, connecting deeply to who and what we really are. Now, my name is Tom Ross, spiritual teacher, healer, spiritual nonconformist, and I am your host for these conversations. On the Intentional Soul, we hear not only from me, but from people who are living intentionally, openly, and authentically in their world. We'll hear their stories of personal transformation while sharing best practices and tactics to help you get the most out of this game called life. Now, nothing is off limits as we seek to expand ourselves and our awareness and live, ultimately, our most authentic lives. Let's dive in. All right, with us today is Jennifer K. Hill. Jennifer is an evolutionary leader, an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and a TV host. She's hosted popular shows with Dr. Deepak Chopra, Dr. Rollin McCready, Dr. Dane Heer, and many other leaders from around the world. And after selling her first company in 2018, she recently co-founded a new company in the wellness space called Optimal Match, or OM.app. She also created a program with celebrity vocal coach Arthur Samuel Joseph called Vocal Mastery for Leaders. Jennifer's actually authored two books, one on spiritual tools to achieve successful life, another on career development and finding purpose. And when she's not hosting or speaking or writing, he <laughs> loves to give back and has built two schools in third world countries. Jennifer, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. The pleasure is all mine. Awesome. So if you don't mind, that's a hell of an amazing bio. Would you mind telling us about yourself, your background to give us, give us the story? Well, I grew up in a small town, Tom. Long now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I did grow up in a very small town in North County, San Diego. And I, you know how you think, like, you know, you think you're different, but you actually don't find out you're different until about 20 years later after you've graduated college and you get diagnosed as having Asperger's. So that was an interesting one. I never understood why my brain seemed to operate so differently than everybody else. And I have this uncanny ability to match people. A, that was what we did in our first job with the legal recruiting company we built and sold. And now that we've created this proprietary algorithm them OptiMatch that allows anybody in the world to utilize it. And I think what my greatest gift is, is being able to just analyze and to look at things objectively. And I was actually, it's my third interview of the day. <laughs> and I was doing an interview earlier and we were talking, the host asked me, what's, how is that a superpower? How is that a good thing? And it really does what do you mean? How's that? That's an amazing thing. What is it? <laughs> I promise I won't ask you how that's a good thing, but I'm sorry. Please go. <laughs> no, it was it was definitely a good thing. I mean, things that sometimes you might feel alone for anybody out there. If you've ever dealt with maybe being neurodiverse, being a little bit different, feeling like you didn't fit in. I'm trying to convince one of my friends who's a children's author writing a book, mama, am I an alien? (laughs) 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 So that's like, it's a joke. I was saying that because sometimes we all fit in, whether we're neurodiverse, whether we're neurotypical, sometimes we have this sense that something just doesn't fit. And especially when you're very young and you don't have a strong sense of self, I really struggled with that. I was bulimic. I drank and partied and did a myriad of other things that probably were not my highest and best good in my early years. 
And I was suicidal and severely depressed because I just felt so terribly alone. And I couldn't be any more grateful for all of my friends, teachers, and mentors who helped me to flourish in my early 20s when I discovered spirituality and then spent the last two decades delving into this work. Amazing. So how old were you when you kind of like surveyed the the landscape and you said there's something that is different now was it something's different about me was it there's something like i just don't seem to like you said fit in it and how like how old were you and how long was that period where you maybe felt displaced before you stumbled into growth work i felt displaced for most of the 38 years of my life until i you know was diagnosed with being aspian and figuring that out and i would say even when i was very very young i would play with other kids and so forth but my favorite pastime when I was a little girl was studying, like reading mm-hmm. books in the library. Or number two was uh, helping handicapped kids, as I love to do that in my spare time. And so I remember people would sometimes make fun of me. I was in what was called gate classes. I knew I might be a little bit different, more so than my peers, especially as I got older, 8, 9, 10, 11. And I was invited to a special school for gifted children in a castle in my hometown, like a small castle thing and god bless my parents i it was me and the two other smartest kids in our class were all invited for a couple of years in lieu of going to junior high school to go here and my parents said no that would traumatize her keeping her away from her peers and it was ironic that the reverse happened you know mm. you're trying to fit in and that was uh, more traumatic though from a soul standpoint I truly believe that it was the perfect thing that my soul needed because the trials and tribulations that I went through between the ages of 11 to my early 20s really helped me catalyze into the person I am today. And you can't create a diamond without pressure. For sure. What did you discover in your in your 20s? You alluded to spirituality. You've alluded to, uh, to, to growth. What was the first, the mechanism to that there's something going on that's outside of your experience or that how you're responding is actually also like the preconditioning that you have? It's a great question. There was in a particular instance when I was in a personal development class when I was 23 years old, my boyfriend at the time had taken a class and was like, really, you got to go do this thing. I was like, you can't make me. (laughs) And I basically sat there like judging everybody all weekend and be like, you have problems and (laughs) you're all weirdos. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like me with my bulimia and self-hatred. I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Living in self-righteousness. Sue is doing it over here but you guys you got problems me i'm good (laughs) it's a little bit delusional so like you start to figure out hmm maybe maybe one and one doesn't equal two and fast forward to the end of that weekend uh i was sitting there with my boyfriend who had invited me and the woman who was facilitating it looks at me and says oh are you gonna do the advanced class and i looked at her and rolled my eyes and said sweetheart darling it was stifling enough having sat in this room the last three days do you think i would really put myself through this hell again and so it's pretty funny so she looks over at my boyfriend he shrugs he's like don't get me started it took her eight months just to do this one Mm -hmm. and so as this happened this was one of those moments this was the moment in my life of before and after and i looked at my boyfriend and i said this is an at-will relationship you can leave anytime you want now part of being aspian is and i didn't know this at the time is that i had no filter (laughs) zip zero zilch so i tell him he can leave and the woman who's facilitating the class looks at me and she says 
can I be really straight with you? And I said, sure, darling, go ahead, be really straight with me. She said, you are a nasty thing. You are like Godzilla walking through a city with a huge tail swinging behind you, knocking down buildings wherever you go. Except you know what? Those are not buildings. They are people's lives you are destroying. You are so powerful and you're using your powers to destroy others. She looked at my boyfriend and told told him, leave her. It's what she needs. And after I like picked my jaw up off the floor and composed myself, I went into my office the next day where we were, I was already relatively successful. I was very young. And I asked everybody, I said, guys, have I ever been condescending or demeaning to any of you? And it went so quiet, Tom, you could hear a pin drop. Mm. Until one woman burst out laughing and said, oh, my God, you are only the most condescending, demeaning B-I-T-C-H we've ever met. We have no idea how you're successful. And so that's when I started to get the cost and impact of, I think, what happened. And actually, I've never shared this part of the story before because it just came to me as we're speaking, Tom. I think what happened was I felt so alone and so afraid of being judged by people because of the fact that I was always saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. It's common with people with Asperger's is that we might inadvertently say something that would be a faux pas to most people, but we just have no context for it. And so I think I had just created this like wall and a moat and some dragons and a few snakes and a few witches to protect me. (laughs) This personality, this persona, if you will, as Arthur and I call it. And this persona was one of a facade to protect myself. And so God forbid I let down my guard, then I might be teased or hurt or bullied and go back to being suicidal again. Yeah, makes sense. And you, I would, I would suspect what you're laying out is, as you said, you were gifted, you know, extraordinarily intelligent, you know, top of the top of the kind of, you know, top of the class. And what a powerful, like, defense mechanism, you know, to be able to, to be able to be that persona that kind of like pushes, you know, that, that pushes people away. And, and I, I just, it's, wow. Were you conscious as you were a child of how incredibly like lonely that must have been? for you, like your experience, or were you in the resentment phase and then the protecting myself via the, you know, via the, the persona that you were, you were um, putting out there? I believe I was very, 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 very lonely from a very young age. I would have maybe one, two friends max, but often even having a friend and being Aspie, you might say the wrong thing and offend that friend and lose sure. that friend, the friend you have very easily. So I think that it was really a culmination of both. I think that the lack of emotional intelligence and the, it, it's almost like this is a beautiful double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have this sharp intellect. And on the other hand, you have an inability to empathize with people, which is how I came to spend 20 years, two decades studying others and myself. Number one, to be able to not make so many faux pas. And I still find myself occasionally I'll meet somebody new. Actually, one of my friends, Orion, I will always remember this. We were at the Kabbalah Center in LA. We had just met. I met she and her husband, Stefan, and we're we're out at this event. And sometimes people with Asperger's, we can speak too much. We can over-communicate. We can come across as uh, self-absorbed or narcissistic if, if you don't understand what's kind of happening on the inside. We're really, we're just trying to 
overcompensate and come across as normal, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I had this conversation with Ryan and her husband. I just met them that night. And I remember thinking, oh, how lovely they were, but I totally screwed it up. I had my foot in my mouth. I overtalked. I said the wrong thing. And when I was at this phase in my life, you would spend days afterwards just reprimanding yourself that I said or did the wrong thing. And then ironically, Ryan became a dear friend. And, you know, we look back at that story and laugh. But I think that the trauma of when you're younger and you say and do the wrong thing so many times that you get you just build that wall up. And then you might open, you might let the bridge down to the moat a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, but then you're afraid and you pull it back up. Oh, that was too soon. I knew I shouldn't have let people across the moat again. <laughs> yep. So you have this powerful awareness, right? You literally first time that you probably ever actually let down the guard enough and asked for feedback. You had feedback that told you something at that moment where when you, when you received that feedback from your, you know, from your staff, the people that you worked with, at least you talked about, essentially a 20 year process of, of growth and development or spirituality. Like how did you move from that woman and what she experienced and what was it into kind of like where you are right now? That is why I say I'm a recovering jerk. (laughs) (laughs) That will probably be the title of my memoir one day. I realized in that moment, Tom, when she shared that with me, that I thought I was a good person. I would donate, volunteer my time, help people. Like I I was the first one to always help. And so it didn't, again, from a logic puzzle standpoint, it just didn't make sense. And then I went out and I started to find out was that true for other people? And then it started to come back to me. There There was actually a beautiful exercise I did where people, you went out and you asked people, what was your first impression of me when we met? Where have I surprised you? Where have I disappointed you? And what's your impression of me now? And for years, I was asking everybody that because it was a litmus test. And then along came my dear friend and business partner, Arthur Samuel Joseph, the celebrity vocal coach who created vocal awareness. He's been teaching that for six decades to Tony Robbins and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dwayne Wade and all of these amazing people. And when Arthur and I started doing this work, he taught me about something called a persona statement. So there's basically a statement where you draw a picture and you write out a statement of how you think you're currently perceived, right? So you might do a drawing, you would write out a statement of how you think you're currently perceived and then how you want to be known. And it's amazing to look now a decade, I've been working with Arthur for about a decade now, a a decade in retrospect, and to see how everything I had ever dreamed of, oh my gosh, living in Europe, getting to be a thought leader, getting to travel the world, getting to do all this, being an evolutionary global thought leader were things that I had written in my persona statement of who I dreamed to be, though you get to continually see we're human beings. It's not about perfection. In fact, that's kind of It's funny, I was talking to one of my dear friends about this earlier. When I do videos, sometimes people see me as being too, quote unquote, perfect and not messy enough. But I think that's the Aspie side of myself that is very linear. It's like my husband calls me his literal lady. Like Hmm. Sometimes I have a hard time processing things that aren't literal. Like I'll just be like, I I don't understand. You weren't, you're joking. Oh, you're Mm -hmm. joking. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so I've worked on cultivating that over years. So it's it's been a journey from that moment of discovering that that was not the person I was committed to being, that person who was a jerk and insensitive. Now, am I still a jerk and insensitive? Absolutely. I'm a human being. I might have a day where I haven't slept well enough. I haven't drank enough water. We all have the capacity for great light and also great darkness. And that's why I spend two hours a day now in prayer and meditation. That's what keeps me sane is my spiritual practices, which is the most recent book I wrote, was one of a series of multiple books that will be written on what are the practices that keep me grounded and prevent me from going back to the dark side? <laughs> what are the what are the practices that keep the keep the dragon in the dungeon? <laughs> what would you mind sharing? It's first of all, tell us tell us you know what the name of your book is and and where I can find it. And second, would you mind like sharing just three practices or tools you know from this you know from this book that you employ in your uh, in your daily life that may be a benefit to someone listening? Oh, of course. So the book is 101 Spiritual Tools for Uncertain Times. And I wrote it during COVID and literally channeled it. I, I'm very fortunate to be intuitive. Uh, I just am able to sometimes hear things or connect to things. And one day I was just sitting there in London during lockdown. And I realized I was like, I have about 100 tools I use at any given time. So book one is 10 of the 100 tools or so that I use. I probably have about 300 tools now. But not everybody can receive 300 tools. Sure. Yeah. So I will share a couple of my favorite tools. One of my favorite tools is inner child work. Have you ever tried that, Tom? Uh, maybe not by exactly the name. Describe it and I'll tell you if I've tried it. It's basically where you connect with a version of yourself at any age. It could be a version of yourself at 10, at mm-hmm. 20, at 14, at 6, whatever the age might be. I've done and this, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you can do it in many wounded child. There's many different ways that you can frame it. And so every day, <laughs> I didn't realize this till years later, you know, that jerk, that jerk is actually an upset three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old who has not been paid attention to for decades. And so what's hilarious is nowadays, I, I never miss a day of doing my inner child work and going internally. I'll put my right hand on my heart, my left hand on my abdomen. I'll check in. In fact, I just posted on my YouTube channel um, a meditation that I created for a class I was facilitating on inner child work. So if anybody wants it, you can go to at Jennifer K. Hill, and that's uh, the YouTube channel, and you'll be able to find the free inner child meditation there. And so here's what's hilarious that I discovered, Tom. So one day I forget to do inner child work. I've been doing it now consistently for about five years, and I forget to do it. And it's about two o'clock. And I am having a meltdown like a three-year-old. I am like, you did this for me. It's not fair. And then all of a sudden in that moment, like 41-year-old Jennifer is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I put my hand on the heart in that second, put my hand on my abdomen. I was like, sweetheart, is that you? forgot about me like i forgot to check in with my inner child that day and she's like you abandoned me and i'm like oh my god i was like sweetheart i'm so sorry no i will not talk to you (laughs) and so if we could all cultivate man a little bit more compassion the next time our spouse our real child our you know friend whomever is having a meltdown you are not dealing with an adult 50 60 20 30 year old person you are dealing with an upset 
that three-year-old who has not had their needs met. <laughs> so inner child work is uh, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, I would say another one is uh, gratitude list, another tool mm. that I use when I do get upset. I have a technique where if I get really upset, really angry, I stop what I'm doing, Tom, and I'm not allowed to get up until I write down a hundred things I'm grateful for. And you are sitting there. hundred <laughs> I'm That's not grateful for anything, but it's great because by the time you get to number 99, even number 50 on the list, you're you're going through the process and you can't be grateful and angry at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I love gratitude. And then one of my third favorite tools that I will be doing right after this interview is what I call spiritual accounting. It's something that came to me from one of my Kabbalistic teachers. And she said, every night before we go to bed, you have this opportunity, the same way you would balance your your account or whatever it is. You look and you say, how could I have lived today better? Was I unkind to somebody? Did I forget to do inner child work? Did I, was I maybe, did I eat five pieces of chocolate cake instead of four? <laughs> you know, you're the only one who knows what's, what matters to you. And so you write down, like, did you spend more time on your phone, less time with your loved ones? Then I write down, what are the things I want to acknowledge myself for? What am I proud of myself for that you, nobody else in the whole wide world might ever know that I did today, but I'm going to acknowledge myself for that before bed. And then the final thing is to write down, what am I grateful for? What are the things that I'm most grateful for? I write down at least three things. I start every day with 10 things as well that I'm grateful for. And then a new technique, there was actually a brilliant guy by the name of Todd Ovakaitis, who I'd interviewed a few years ago. And I was sharing this in the interview and he said, Jen, I'm gonna challenge you to add a few more things to your spiritual accounting. I said, great, what are they? He said, I want you to also write down the moments of awe, synchronicity and miracles in your day. And so it's actually funny, since I've started doing this, I've had Uh, I'm very, very grateful, Tom. I've had more miracles than I could even imagine in a lifetime rain down on me. And so I actually asked the universe to show me 30 miracles every day and the wisdom to recognize and appreciate them. And I actually have a class coming up on Miracle Making 101 because I have so many people who ask, how do you generate so many miracles? And so in the class, we'll be teaching that. That's so, so beautiful. Um, And Becoming aware of the synchronicity that's at play at all times is a game-changing experience for for people uh, who are interested in in greater degrees of connectivity, oneness, uh, oh, you know, spiritual awareness. That's that's absolutely outstanding. Tell us about OptiMatch. Mm. So OptiMatch is uh, our algorithm, our proprietary algorithm that we spent eight months developing and then further beta tested in our own-heels.com platform. Which is and when, and when you say we, it's it's you and a, and a, a couple of business partners. Like like what's the what's the the we? Yeah, we have uh, co-founders. The universal we know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, co-founders i'm very very thankful my dear dear friend and business partner julian adler actually helped me build and sell the last company he was my business coach in that one and then came on as a co-founder in this one Mooncho was also instrumental in it in helping us develop the algorithm and then recently we we are so so talking about miracles we had three medical advisors just join the optimatch team to help us in a couple of different ways because we want every person on the planet with my with my history of mental health and struggling with depression and suicide 
my dream, Tom, is for every person on the planet to have the right coach, the right mentor, the right therapist to support them. And so that's why we brought in Marta Shea Cedar, who's this brilliant Columbia professor, quadruple board certified, who's going to help us write a scientific study to peer review it. And that way we can empirically validate it, use it with insurance companies, help people that way. Another dear friend of mine, Dr. Rakesh Suri, who I love and adore, he was the prior CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, came on board and is coming on as a medical advisor. And my friend, Mark Golston, who I probably would not be here without, Dr. Mark Golston, author of the book, Just Listen, and one of the most famous psychiatrists in the world, he saved my life when I was going through a very dark, dark period several years ago. Awesome. And so, the, and so again, back to your superpower, you know, is your, the, your ability to, to match people, this, this algorithm yeah. it's for the benefit of, of matching. Essentially, if I'm someone who is seeking some type of healing, some type of spiritual information, like, like who, who's coming in to be, to be matched. And then what kind of services are you matching or service providers are you matching them to? So great question. There are two sides. There's own-heals.com, which is 100 practitioners that we personally vetted around the world where we tested the algorithm. We got to an 87% satisfaction rate, unprecedented happiness from so many of the people, multiple, multiple bookings. People had life-changing results. So that's own-heals.com. Anybody can go on there, click get matched and find out for free who their three best algorithmic matches are. We then parlayed that because so many people, I realized, you know, my intention by the time that I leave this world, Tom, is to have helped millions, if not billions of people. And with one platform, we can only help so many people. So that's why we created Optimatch Om.app, which is a way that we can license through software as a service anybody around the world. So say better mm. help, say EAP systems, like for example, anybody out there, like the companies that we're working with, we have a couple in Australia, one in the United States, where they have groups of their own coaches and teachers and practitioners who might be sent out, for example, to a business that employees need support, or maybe to underprivileged areas that need therapists for a nonprofit. And so what then happens is our OptiMatch algorithm is a line of code that gets plugged into any website. And then there people can go online, answer it. And our algorithm will naturally email our clients back who their best matches are for that particular user. That's fascinating. That's, that's amazing. And so, and so again, it's um, because I, I went on to, uh, I went onto the, the website and, and there's, I mean, there's channels, mediums, healers, uh, Reiki, you know, masters. There's, as you indicated, there's uh, medical practitioners uh, as well. And so, and so it's someone who is essentially seeking for just some kind of, some kind, like, how, how would I stumble into the website? Gosh, we have a lot of people who come. So from YouTube, from because I do so many interviews, like Deepak Chopra and Don Hoffman and I just did our 18th episode together in the last three years. So because of that and because of a lot of speaking engagements, I have a speaking engagement at the same conference as Deepak in London. I have another one coming up mm. in Croatia. So I, it's all been organic. It's all been word of mouth. And even all the practitioners, we have to turn away practitioners sometimes because we just don't have enough resources yet. That's why we're growing the company to be able to support all these endeavors. So yeah, the om-heals.com side, which is where you can find the Reiki masters and practitioners and energy healers and therapists, that's the one side that's the consumer-facing side. And then the OptiMatch, the om.app, 
is the version that allows any business around the world to be able to have same access to our proprietary algorithm. Got it, got it, got it. And so is it like if I'm someone who has a network of providers, I plug in your, your algorithm or and is, is it, was it within, exactly. is it within? And it is it all is the algorithm specific to to this kind of uh, healing seeking kind of like modality, uh, or or is it actually is it is it a broader application where back to your legal services? It's like it, there's actually an application where you could put it into matchmaking for legal services or matchmaking for you know health clubs or you name it, right? Like. I love where your brain is at, Tom. That's you are the visionary seeing where we're going with the company. So right now it's we tested, we have early data and the tests that we've done thus far have been proven already in coaching, mental health, wellness, et cetera. So that's already been tested. Yeah. Early results are showing us that teachers and students match according to the same data. Because what we've done is we measured exactly how much variability between Tom and a practitioner is tolerable. So to your point, we actually, I had an attorney friend I was having dinner with a little while ago and he's like, oh God, I wish you had had that for me with my clients. It would have saved me because it, it drains us, Tom. It's like poking holes in a boat and then you have these energetic drains. Anytime any service provider of any sort, whether it's an attorney and dating, that's something people have asked us to do that we may eventually uh, also utilize the algorithm for because it's an AI that's going to learn as it gathers more and more data. So there are many, many applications of it. And the idea is any time that you mismatch somebody, we've all been there, right? Like we've mm-hmm. all had that oh, yeah. happy experience. It's an energy drain. It's exhausting and it depletes our resilience. It impacts our health and well-being. And what if we could mitigate that? And that's our dream. I think you could also, you could accelerate career paths, you know, in an almost exponential way. So if you think about it, the career path of anyone who is uh, a high producer or top producer in the field, it's this, you know, slow roll. All of a sudden you're, 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 you're growing, you're growing, you're growing, you hit a point and then you start shedding everybody that you should never have picked up to begin with. You know what I mean? Like, like there, there's a shakeout where everybody who seeks ultimately for a degree of satisfaction or happiness, you know, in, in their life eventually gets to a place where they're like, and now I'm going to fire 30% of, uh, you know, 30% of my clients. And it would just be, it'd be an amazing thing for a technology to be able to say, to be able to see down the road based on your, based on your predilections and your, your propensities, you know, Oh, that's going to wind up having a, that's going to wind up running a course. Why don't you focus in on this one, this one, this one, and this one, pour your energy and effort there. So that way you're, you're not burning calories in a depleting or draining way. Like what you're describing. That's how exciting that's like, that's one of those, you know, like five years, 10 years from now, you know, like the applications and where you're going to be with this is really going to be amazing. Thank you, Tom. I'm very humbled by it. I'm humbled to get to work with such wonderful team members and and just for the gift, the gift of having Asperger's, the gift of, you know, having these things that damn near killed me in my, you know, late teens and early twenties. And yet they often say that what is our greatest Achilles heel, what is our greatest pain point can also be the greatest gift we can bring to the world. And that is our intention. So is what you're doing right now, when you look at your life and how it's configured, is it is it wildly different than what you what you used to imagine for yourself or is there a version of you that was always like yes this is kind of where i'm going well it's funny people ask me like when you were a little girl what did you want to be and i love like my grandfather was my best friend growing up and he and my grandmother would throw these 
awesome parties on 4th of July in the United States, right? And my grandfather, because he had been in the Marine Corps, and, and actually this is how we started beta testing our algorithm, was gifting sessions to veterans. So if any veterans are out there and need support, please reach out. We have resources. Veterans hold a very, very special place in my heart because of my grandfather. And one of our advisors, Justin Ahama, is a veteran as well. And so I get asked by one of my grandfather's friends who's a Marine, uh, actually a general, and he looks down at me and says, oh, sweetheart, I'm five years old. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, without missing a beat, first woman president of the United States. Like, nice. I even knew that was a thing in like, it would have been like 1986 and that I even, uh, I don't even know where that came out of. So in that sense, no, I am not first woman president of the United States, but I remember throwing words around like when I was a little girl, like, I want to be a jet setter. Who even says that? How do I <laughs> My parents are like blue collar nurse and firefighter. And so do I now get to travel the world and, you know, live this life? Yes. And it's only by the grace of the universe and God. It's because, as I always say, the universe is the source of my supply. I am not the source of it. I just am merely a channel for ideas and resources to flow through. I love that. A channel for ideas and resources. That's, you know, one of the, you know, it's, you're essentially creation creating, right? You know, it's coming through you. It's not me thinking it's, it's all occurring through. Um, what's your right now? What, what's the greatest success in, in your, in your biggest challenge that you're working on currently? Oh, great question. Greatest success. It's so funny when people read my bio or they share that I have to say the greatest success has to have been building the schools that mm. that was a dream come true, getting to see the villagers to work side by side. Actually, one of the greatest moments of my life was I was in uh, Dakar, about two hours outside of Dakar in Senegal. And it always been my dream to build schools. My mom and dad and I built the first one. My dad and I are out there building the second one in Dakar. And uh, it's like hot and, and we're, you know, mixing cement and stuff. And so here I am and I'm like covered in like sand and stuff. And I have this uh, bucket with sand on my head and I'm carrying it to the work site. And the women looked at me and I, what is this white gringo? What is this white woman doing? What did, and they actually pulled me over. And a few of the women pulled me aside and threw a translator. They said, we don't understand. You're already building the school for our children. You already brought the money to do this. Why are you working? And, and we didn't even think women could work. And I said, of course we can work. We can, we can work. I believe in you. I believe in your children. And I want them to have a future. And the women looked at me and they said, you mean we can do this too? We can build? We could build with you? And I said, absolutely. Oh, my God, Tom, these women lined up who had never in their lives before done this sort of thing before, like the men's work, whatever it was, right? Sure. And there was a line of women in the most beautiful colored caftans and babies on their chests and everything. And they just formed this working line. And they said, thank you for sharing with us that we had the power to, to work and contribute and build. And I mean, I, I don't think that any amount of money or anything I could ever do in my life could surpass that moment or some of the other moments I had building the schools. And I would say, you know, the biggest challenge right now is I've never fundraised before. My last company was built and sold completely bootstrapped. So it's been a learning experience, learning how do you fundraise? Like, what does that even look like? And how do you choose the right partners and the right team members? And do you take VC money? Do you take grant money? Do you take angel investor money? Or do you bootstrap it the whole way again? And so with technology, it's a little bit different because 
depending on how quickly you want to get to market, you need a quicker infusion of cash than like, for example, I did with my recruiting company. So it's just been, it's been a, a game of patience, divine timing, and also technology, you know, technology, uh, building a service company was easy, you know, building a technology company, you have technology, <laughs> you yeah. know, things sometimes don't work the way you anticipate. And so you just have to be patient and then go back and have the team recode and work through it again. So it's been been humbling and wonderful. Is there a particular time that you can uh, you can recall that you had to really draw from within like a, a certain amount of courage to to kind of like make the decision or move in the in the direction you're you're moving right now? What's your experience of that? It was more of trust and flow. Honestly, I'm very, very deeply intuitive, Tom. I, I talk to God every day. I meditate. I pray every day. And so for me, it's been more of an act of surrender. There are times where I think, oh, God, it would be so much easier to go back to recruiting because I can just do it with my eyes closed and make money and do it, though I feel like my soul is being caused to do something else. So I think every day that I continue on this path of choosing to build this new company is a victory of human spirit. Awesome. And if you were going to share something with someone who you know is listening maybe in a position where they're, they're they'd like to take a risk or be more of you know who or what they really are but they're kind of afraid what would you want to share and actually i'm going to give you one one other thing to consider when you talking to th- uh, that person is there something different that you would want to share maybe there's someone listening right now that uh that you know is it has kind of an Asperger's, right? And and is in a situation like like where where you were, where they don't feel like they fit, like they fit either. What would you want to tell that person uh, as well, knowing what you know now, being where you are? For anyone out there, Tom, who might be neurodiverse, for any of you out there, whether you're neurodiverse or maybe you're struggling with mental health or depression. Whatever it looks like, there is no one box, checkbox, or right or wrong way to feel. It's we all feel loneliness, no matter whether we're neurodiverse or neurotypical. Is I would say to cultivate a relationship with yourself. That's it. You know, friends, people, family, everybody is going to go through their experiences. It is very, very great to cultivate relationships with others. The the most important relationship you will ever cultivate is the one with yourself. And if you learn, I was actually just wrapping a class earlier today. It was the fourth class in a series we were doing. And I was telling the ladies in that class the same thing. If we can learn to love and accept and cherish ourselves, and the rest is icing. Then whether or not you get the business deal, whether or not you meet the soulmate, you love yourself. And that is really all that any of us needs, whether we're neurodiverse or neurotypical, is to love and accept yourself. And when other people get there, great. It'll merely be a reflection of how you treat yourself. What's one thing that somebody, maybe from an age of 13 years old through, you know, through 80 years old, what's one thing that someone who hasn't ever really thought about cultivating a relationship with themselves, what's one, th- one action they can take to, to begin that process? Find out what matters to you. Spend time, like going back to the inner child thing. Every day I ask my little girl, you know, what do you need? How are you feeling? And sometimes, especially being Aspie, and I was sharing this with my business partner earlier, adult Jennifer, 42-year-old now that I am, I don't know sometimes that I'm sad or upset because it just, it just doesn't dawn on me. And then, mm-hmm. thank God I do the work in the morning. I'm like, hey, sweetheart, how are you feeling? She's like, I'm really sad. And I'm kind of shocked because I didn't think I was sad. I was like, oh, okay, what are you sad about? 
well, actually, I'm really sad because my friend Dina just left or whatever it might be. But at the at the conscious level, you don't even realize this. So when we take that time to understand, I, I didn't realize how much I loved dancing until five years ago when I started doing this. She mm-hmm. loves to dance every day, literally, mm-hmm. literally and metaphorically dancing. And now dancing is one of my favorite passions and brings me so much joy. But I would have never known that had I not cultivated that relationship with myself. Love it. Jennifer Hill, thank you so, so, so very much for spending time with us here today. Uh, What's the best way for people to connect? The best place for people to go would be metaphysics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S. So metaphysics, a play on metaphysical, of course, and business.com. So metaphysics.com. And I often will have the latest courses, the podcast I host, different things going on there. And that would be a great place to check in. Perfect. Thank you so much for spending time with us and look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Thank you, Tom. All right, this has been another episode of the Intentional Soul Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember to leave a five-star review if you found this content of value. And as always, I'm your host, Tom Ross, Master Practitioner of the Advanced Rapid Enlightenment Process and Rapid Enlightenment Process developed by Matthew Ferry. You can reach me at Tom at TomRossTalks.com and the website to engage and be a part of any classes, trainings, or sessions I have going on is www.TomRossTalks.com. Until next time, peace.